welcome to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. My name is Jasmine, and I'm recording this week with my co-hosts and friends, Reese and Janet. Uh, We are recording this on Saturday, October the 14th. You're listening to it for the first time on Sunday, October the 15th, and it will be rebroadcast on Monday, October the 16th. So how are y'all doing? How was your Friday the 13th? I'm well. Um... It was kind of low key to be honest, so which is a good thing. I'm doing well. Also surviving the 13th, um, keeping it quiet, just doing some home projects. Yeah, I haven't been haven't been up to any trouble or anything like that. Didn't do anything for the 13th. I watched a scary movie actually. Was that before? I can't even keep my day straight. I watched a scary movie at some point late this week. Okay, so on this week's episode for the local news story, I'll be talking about a surge in food pantry visits in New York City. For national news, we'll be talking about something called an ebony alert that um, has just become a thing in California. It's like an amber alert, but for Black children and women ages 12 to 25 or 24. Um, And for our world news story, we'll be talking about the current humanitarian crisis unfolding in Gaza. Um, So I will be talking about the local news story. Uh, This comes from Gothamist. And again, I won't read the full thing for the sake of time, um, but this is the majority of the article. The title is Food Pantry Visits Surge in NYC as Perfect Storm Over Benefit Delays and Inflation Aligns by Karen Yee. Lines for hot meals and free groceries are growing longer, New York City nonprofits say, citing a surge in recent months reminiscent of the worst days of the pandemic when crowds wrapped around the block. The Salvation Army says they've served 53% more meals to New Yorkers in the first nine months of 2023 compared to the same time the year prior. Meanwhile, the food bank for New York City is seeing an 8% uptick in average monthly visits since February. Food pantry providers point to the end of a pandemic-spurred food assistance benefit that gave people extra cash to buy groceries, um, a record backlog at a city agency delaying public assistance checks, and skyrocketing food prices for the growing demand. Stephen Grimaldi, executive director of the New York Common Pantry, says they've served 30% more hot meals in fiscal year 2023 than the year before. City data shows more than half the applications for cash assistance and supplemental nutrition assistance program benefits, known as SNAP, weren't processed on time between last July through June of this year the worst rates reported in at least 10 years. Gotham is previously reported. The city's Department of Social Services previously said they're working to reduce delays, but are facing an unprecedented number of applications amid staff attrition. A monthly look at the numbers show just 10.7% of the 43,000 cash assistance applications in June were processed on time according to city data. So that means like nearly 90% were not processed on time. That's massive. That's the lowest rate since 2006. 
about 30% of cash assistance applications and about 40% of food stamp applications were processed within 30 days as required by state and federal laws. A Department of Social Services spokesman didn't immediately respond to questions, but agency officials previously told Gothamist the need among New Yorkers hasn't abated since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. The agency said it receives an average of 40,000 cash assistance and 40,000 SNAP applications a month, nearly double pre-pandemic levels. It's absolutely unacceptable that the processing rates are lower than they've been under a number of previous mayors, says Joel Berg, CEO of Hunger Free America. Food pantries and in some cases soup kitchens are even more overwhelmed. The longer lines and growing demand also come as food prices rose 3.6% in September in the New York region compared to the year prior, according to data released Thursday by the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Um, so for the sake of time, I'm not going to finish reading um, the rest, but they go on to talk about how under the Adams administration, there's really been terrible delays in getting through these applications and it's really messing with people's um, safety net. Um, if you're aware, just paying bills, like having to wait and not making it on time can have really catastrophic effects for you. Um, and just some side information, this is from Curbed by Ross Barkin, working for the city when everyone else is leaving. In December 2022, the city comptroller's office released a report and found that the overall vacancy rate at city agencies is 8%, quadruple the 2% rate before COVID. Department of Buildings has nearly 23% of its positions vacant. City planning is at 22%. Housing preservation and development and finance are each at 18%. Cyber Command, charged with protecting the city's cybersecurity, is at 36%. And perhaps the most extreme case is the Department of Social Services Child, Social Services Child Support Services Division, which is almost half empty. It doesn't help the remaining employees that the mayor announced in November of 2022 he'd be slashing some unfilled positions by as much as 50%. Um, so yeah, it's, um, really bleak just, and I, if you're in the city these days, like if you're out here commuting, like you can really see the increase in just people in desperate need. And it doesn't seem like we have an administration that is committed to helping to mitigate that problem, but like these vacancies and these delays, it's really staggering seeing those numbers. Yeah, that's definitely disheartening. I definitely feel like, um, first of all, there's not enough of these facilities to help the people who need it, um, just overall in different places. And I think that the work that's done by these facilities is important because People really do suffer now trying to provide for themselves, their families and everything like that. But also, you know, it's, it's moments like this when we all need just a little bit more help. And I feel like even, there are people who not, are not even aware of these services. So we just need to make sure that 
this is an option for people, but also like make sure that the system works for the people who are providing because it's a service that's always needed for everyone, no matter what we going through or who the people are. Yeah, it's it's been shocking to see even things like butter and eggs and milk and basic items have these high prices no matter what grocery store you're looking in. Um, I know it makes a difference for me and I'm sure so many other people, it's, it's a dire situation for feeding their family and things like that. Um, Jasmine, do you happen to know of any... Um, Pan, like food donation sites in your area. I know that I'm in Astoria here and I've seen our local grocery store sometimes has people who, you know, they'll give you a list of items that is needed and then you can pick them up on your way into the grocery store and give them to them on the way out. Um, do either of you have things like that in your area? I don't have something uh, exactly like that, but there is um, there's an a lo an organization called People in Need in my area where I know I've given them masks and stuff, but they also do food distribution. Uh, and there's also um, like I live in a an area where there's a lot of um, like ethnic enclaves. So there's like a palette, like there's a Pakistani American association where there'll be like a community fridge, like where you can leave things in the fridge um, for people to just take as they need it. So yeah, there's definitely things in, in my neighborhood for sure. As far as my neighborhood, I'm not exactly sure. Um, I live in Los Angeles, but I know there is a need for it. Uh, but within my work, I work at a college campus and it's definitely the food pantry for the college students is definitely like an ongoing service that's always um, used and provided for. Um, and I think that, you know, sometimes people forget that, you know, college students are struggling and also the elderly. You know, I know I definitely set up some meals on wheels for some elderly people that I know. And those those services help, you know, sometimes that's all people have. And sometimes that's all people need, honestly, because that is a way to subsequent what they don't have. Um, so definitely we'll look for those facilities and see how I can be of service, but also just to share that information with other people because we all fall on times. You know, I remember growing up my during the holidays, we always had an adopted family or something like that to help around, um, you know, with my family to make sure that everybody had what they needed. But just, you know, just want to give some love to people who, operate these organizations and care about this uh, food shortage and hunger needs because it's, it's really something that's affecting all of us every day. Uh, well, I, I don't disagree that it's good and important to be plugged into what's happening locally and to pitch in, but I also feel like the there's only so much that like mutual aid and like helping each other is going to go because like if you're struggling yourself like a lot of the people that are donating to these organizations and volunteering their time like they're also doing that at a cost to themselves but then you see like people in local government whose job it is to make sure that these like applications are being processed on time like I don't think that they should be let off the hook so I think while doing what we can, like, I also think it's important to try to, like, 
they like there there should be some accountability for like why is it that these jobs are being allowed to just sit empty when there's obviously a very big need you know like it would be different if it's like oh there aren't enough applications coming through like for for this financial assistance so we have too many workers in this sector but it seems like that's not the case at all like there's a really huge demand and there's a lot of work that needs to be done but it's i think that unfortunately sometimes people in these positions of authority they kind of assume like well we don't have to do it because they can just go to the church pantry or like their community will figure it out or something like that and you know we should do what we can but like we also all have our limits you know like if you're check to check there's only so much you can do um for the people around you yeah it goes back to a lot of um conversations we've had on this show with thinking about leadership and um just the the huge amount of problems that were either came about during the pandemic or were exposed by and exacerbated by the pandemic. And you're right, Jasmine, that like this, this has deeper causes and our leadership and government could be doing things to alleviate some of the economic stress and, and, you know, enable people to get these jobs that would help them. Yeah, so in that spirit, like, we'll definitely share on our social media platforms, like, just, you know, for the New York City area, like, there's many different organizations that are trying to help their neighbors out, helping families in need, but, you know, put some pressure where you can on your elected officials to also do something. You know, there's only so much, like, robbing Peter to pay Paul that's going to fix that. Like, we, it has to be a combination of things to try to fill these gaps. So for our first musical break, this is Coldplay with God Put a Smile Upon Your Face. You're listening to Objections to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. We'll be right back. Where do we go? Nobody knows. I've got to say I'm on my way. Down. God give me style and give me grace God put a smile upon my face
Radio Free Brooklyn's mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, free expression, and public art. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. Every dollar helps us stay on the air and allows us to continue our work in the community. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so all contributions are tax deductible. Please support with a monthly pledge or a one-time donation at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash donate. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And up next, we have Reese with our national news story. Okay, so this story comes from TheGuardian.com. The title is California Creates Ebony Alert to Find Missing Black Women and Girls. Um, And the date on the article is October 12th. The author is Abine Clayton. California has become the first state to create an alert system specifically geared towards finding missing Black women and girls. Senate Bill 673 was signed by the governor, Gavin Newsom, earlier this week amid a wave of legislation that has come across the governor's desk. Ebony alerts would allow the California Highway Patrol to trigger emergency notifications on phones and road signs, similar to amber and feather alerts, to let people know that a Black person between the ages of 12 and 25 is missing in the area. Our Black children and young women are disproportionately represented on a list of missing persons. Stephen Bradford, a Democratic state senator who represents cities in southern L.A. County and authored the bill, said in a statement, This is heartbreaking and painful for so many families and a public crisis for our entire state. The Ebony Alert can change this. California does not break down data on missing persons by race, but nationally, Black people represent 35% of those reported missing to the federal government's National Crime Information Center, Missing Persons File, according to a Guardian analysis of NCIC data, despite making up only 13% of the population. In recent years, organizations like the Black and Missing Foundation have shown a light on these racial disparities, as well as a lack of attention missing people of color receive from law enforcement and news media. The Black and Missing Foundation described Bradford's bill as a step in the right direction that other U.S. legislators should look to emulate. It is important to continue to raise awareness about this issue and advocate for policies that prioritize finding missing people of color. We must ensure that every missing person is given the same amount of attention and resources, regardless of their race or socioeconomic status, the Black and Missing Foundation said in the statement. The California Highway Patrol only issues an amber alert if a person younger than 17 is confirmed to have been abducted. This, among with long-standing assumptions about Black criminality, had led law enforcement to overclassify Black youth as runaways, according to SB 673's text. These factors also obscure issues like sex trafficking, said Sakufi Hutchinson, founder of the Women's Leadership Project in Los Angeles. It's outrageous the Black children go missing, that go missing are perceived as being runaways or criminals or vagrant in some ways. She said, it's a vicious cycle and does not get the exposure. But Hutchinson adds that the bill can only act as a band-aid if it doesn't also lead to coordination between law enforcement, government, and local nonprofits that work directly with trafficking victims and at-risk youth people, young people, especially those who have already had contact with the criminal legal system. The superficial value 
is that there's more exposure, more eyes and ears on these cases, Hutchinson said. The systemic impetus for the systemic impetus for this is not being addressed is looking for the front end of prevention. So that's the end of the article here. There's a few more out there talking about um, this particular issue. And I think it is worth discussing because it has a lot of uh, ramifications about um, these issues and also how to start to put more place, more things in play for this specific community. What are your thoughts? I think that sounds like a great initiative. Um, it, you know, can highlight people who are missing um, and maybe get attention within different outlets that would help them be found quicker. Um, I think any of these kind of Amber Alerts and different applications on the phones can be a great way, but you don't want it to get lost in the mix. So I think if there's different um, groups that, you know, you might have an elderly parent or if you're in a black family and you want to have um, this app on your phone, like I think it can help people target and be alerted in different ways. And that seems very valuable. Yeah, I don't like we were Reese, you mentioned this to me before we started recording. And it is um like I think the article does point to a very real issue like that where like black people are disproportionately um represented in some of these missing persons cases and especially black children and young girls are often classified as runaways. But I gotta say, like I'm a little bit I, I guess I'm not really clear on why, on like what the Ebony Alert would specifically do that's like distinct from like just any alert that would be for any missing person. Like I'm not really clear on what like the practical value of it might be. And I, I'm not sure if I'm like missing something or. The article didn't really give us as much as we needed. And I wanted, I think this is an area for us to take a look um, a little differently as to why this is really needed, right? Because I was speaking about this with another young black woman and she was a little bit offended that first of all, the name was Ebony Alert, which distinguishes black missing people from anyone else. I don't know why Amber is Amber and Amber Alert, but she felt that and I'm bringing up her, her um, ideas because initially I didn't think about this this way. Why do we need to specify that this is a brown person, black or brown person missing, as opposed to anyone else through changing the name of the alert or initiating some system specifically for the community? The only reason I can come up with that is that the Amber Alert system is not being used for everyone. I mean, that's that's the only logic that makes sense. Um and I can be honest, when my alert, the Amber Alert goes off on my phone, I'll take a look at it, but I'm not like studying it, you know, to like see what I can see. It's kind of annoying. It just kind of goes off. I'm not really sure how effective the Amber Alert system is, period, um, for anyone, you know, because you really don't hear results about these things. So in some ways, like they said in the article, like this is somewhat of a Band-Aid, but it feels to me that this is initially a good idea but 
it also has ramifications, like I was saying, that whatever systems are in place are not being used for all communities. And then with systemic racism and other type of just prejudice in this life, if someone is informed that a Black person is missing, how does that, does this Amber Alert really encourage people to help? Or single out a community that may not get the help if a person is on the other side of the argument. Uh, Well, just a note, like Amber Alert, it's a backronym. So it was named after a young girl who was abducted and later murdered in 1996. Her name was Amber Renee Hagerman. And then after, so it was named for her, but then afterwards they, the acronym became America's Missing Broadcast Emergency Response. So that's why it's amber. Like it doesn't relate to the skin color of the person, but that's like the origin of the name uh, for the alert. I think those are really good points, Reese. And it does kind of make us think about how are missing people found and how can the public be used to help find them? Um, I feel like maybe, maybe the better thing would be something that targets your area we know that the phones are tracking us all the time. So maybe if it's something like your zip code initiates something special, somebody has been missed, abducted or gone missing in your area. Um, I've seen things, I'm not on social media anymore, but when I was there, you know, Facebook would have missing people with a picture. And I feel like that seemed a little bit more helpful because it was usually related to a community that you were already associated with on Facebook. And with the picture, you might, you know, look around and see if you saw that person in your day to day. So it is all good things you're bringing up. Like it's kind of confusing to what extent the Amber Alert is useful and how could these things be more useful? Yeah. I'm not really sure. I I can understand why some people, are like, yeah, this is great, but I kind of feel like the root problem is like that cert- like the same situation can get wild- wildly different levels of attention, and that makes such a huge difference in like the manpower that's put towards finding the kid or the missing person. Like, I don't really know. And like the feather alert, like for missing indigenous people, like that sounds a little like who came up with that name? Like, was that? I don't know like I'm not Native American but it's I would I would find that to be a little bit questionable but there's definitely people that will like see that and then put in less effort or be like oh it's not my problem because it's being announced that like oh they're this color so I I don't know like it's a it's a complex situation for sure yeah well I am of Native American heritage and I do feel that the feather alert uh, I'm not exactly sure um, if that's the right way to go about things either. Um, but, you know, this issue is, it's like, it's like something that I think had good intentions, but it's also the need for it to be specifically specified as for people of color is an issue for me. Um, there's a, a small little snippet I'd like to share from CBS News about this that gives us just a little numbers to deal with. I just read a little bit of it just because it does talk about some uh, stats from the Black and Missing Foundation. 
Um, at least 39% of children reported missing in the United States in 2022 were Black, according to the Black and Missing Foundation, which said that 153,374 children of color were still missing across the country as of October 11th. That figure included people younger than 18 who were African-American, Asian, and Indian. The nonprofit organization has compiled breakdowns of nationwide missing person statistics by race, gender, and age using data from the Justice Department National Criminal Information Center as well as the Census Bureau. Race was listed as unknown for a small percentage of children reported missing. Um, one thing specifically about this um, Ebony Alert is that it is reporting on, which is different from the Amber Alert, People who are young women who are up to age 25, which involves a, I think the angle around that was to target a group of people who may be involved with sex trafficking. But something else that is important to consider is that, and this is from the article as well, a lot of minority children that are initially classified as runaways and that, um, and as a result do not receive an Amber Alert. So, the, you know, the good part about this is that it is addressing a greater community, right? Over 17 to 25 people who may be in a different situation. But also the fact that they're classifying missing minority children as runaways is the real problem. Because if they weren't doing that, would we need an Ebony Alert? Yeah, that's that's always been because like even if the child did run away, they still need to be found. Exactly. You know, like they could have fallen into the hands of someone or they could be hurt. Like, I don't I never understood the logic of like, well, I think they're a runaway. So we're not going to expend resources to find them. That's you know, prejudice. Like, yeah. yeah and that's and like to your point, it's not just under 18. You know, young people, young adults can also go missing. Anyone can go missing. You know, like if someone is like, I haven't heard from so-and-so and it's been however much time and it's a concern, like it should be taken seriously. And criminalizing people by calling them runaways is a real systemic problem um, that I think should really be addressed. So, you know, while the Ebony Alert is um, innovative to an extent, I definitely feel like it's somewhat of a band-aid and the fact that this is only coming out in California at this moment. I mean, I guess other states may adapt it once they see the uh, longevity of it, if it actually is successful. It is um, still problematic in the, the sense that, so does that mean that people who are not of color between the ages of 17 and 25 are not being accounted for? I don't know. It's just, it's just a lot of holes um, in this issue, but I like to see how it's adapted, if it's effective, and if um, it does transform the numbers on these missing persons reports. I guess at the very least it can't hurt, but it certainly doesn't seem like a full solution. And thinking on this topic, it it reminds me, I think, Jasmine, we've talked about this on the show before in other contexts, but... Um, you know, we're on our phones and in some sense we're all connected in that way, but people aren't watching the daily news on their televisions. They're not listening to the same radio programs. So there is kind of a loss of shared, um, something like shared television time where you could put out an ad that you'd be sure that a lot of people would see. So 
I guess we have a long way to go to explore other methods that can reach everyone and not just be ignored like other things. Yeah, that's true. I think we're all old enough to remember it's 10 o'clock. Do you know where your children are? Like, and that used to be a thing. It's like, you know, appointment television or like you were sitting in front of a TV and it's true that there used to be more of like a communal experience of consuming like different media where stuff could be disseminated and that things have become so fractured now where like I do think it makes sense to use the phone but I think it seems more like I don't know but then the other side to that is like are so many people missing that it would just become like constant buzzing on your phone like if you were to say anytime a person is missing there's an alert and then people just tune it out like I don't know it's really a it's a difficult situation to think of how to address it but I think we have some ideas on how to at least start with like you know everyone should get the same attention at least if they're gone All right, so you are listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn, and for our next musical break, this is Flume with Never Be Like You. We'll be right back. What I would do to take away this fear of being loved, allegiance to the pain. Now I fucked up, and I'm missing you. Never be like you. I would give anything to change This fickle-minded heart They lost fake shiny things Now I fucked up And I'm missing you I'll never be like you I'm only human, can't you see? I made, I made a mistake Please just look me in my face Tell me everything's okay Follow our social media accounts. We have an Instagram account and we also have a Facebook account. Our Facebook page can be found at facebook.com forward slash objection radio free BK. No spaces, no punctuation. Our Instagram account is at objection to the rule. Again, no spaces, no punctuation marks.
Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And up next, we have Janet with our world news story. I've abbreviated this article for time, but the article I'm going to be reading is called Nearly Half of Gaza's Population Displaced in Humanitarian Crisis. It was written on October 14, 2023, and it's written by Raja Abdul Rahim. In southern Gaza's main city, Khan Yunis, throngs of people displaced from the north stood in the streets on Saturday outside schools, hospitals, and the homes of friends who took them in, waiting with their empty bottles for the water truck to come by. When it passed, they surged forward, each with a des- each one desperate to fill up a bottle or two to quench the thirst of the families they fled with. A fast-growing humanitarian crisis has erupted in southern Gaza, which is being inundated by hundreds of thousands of displaced people who fled northern Gaza in the past day alone. According to the UNRWA, the UN agency that aids Palestinians. In total, nearly half of Gaza's population of more than 2 million has been displaced over the past week, the agency said on Saturday. The entire Gaza Strip is in danger of running out of water, the United Nations warned on Saturday. Many Gazans do not have access to clean drinking water and are resorting to drinking polluted water. For some, it is down to a struggle to stay alive and meet basic needs, including finding food or a place to shelter. Khan Yunus has been inundated over the past day, with many of those streaming down from the north after the Israeli army ordered more than one million residents of the area to leave their homes, anticipating an Israeli ground invasion in the coming days that now seems all but inevitable. This round of violence was triggered one week ago when Hamas, the group that controls Gaza, staged a surprise attack on southern Israel that killed more than 1,300 people. Israel responded over the past week with an air bombardment on the densely populated coastal enclave. On Monday, Israel's defense minister imposed what he called a complete siege of Gaza, saying this would prevent electricity, food, water, and fuel from entering the territory that had been blockaded by Israel and Egypt for the past 16 years. Clean water is running out after Gaza's water plant and public water networks stopped working because of a lack of fuel, the UN said, adding that people are resorting to drinking dirty water from wells, increasing the risk of waterborne diseases. Gaza's three water desalinization plants, which were producing 21 million liters of drinking water a day, have also halted operations because they are without fuel. Israel provided water to Gaza before the Hamas attacked a week ago, but cut off the supply on October 9th. The displaced people are grappling with threats from airstrikes above, lack of water, and the absence of virtually any havens to take refuge from it all. On Saturday, a doctor from Al-Shifa Hospital, the biggest medical center in Gaza, where thousands of wounded people seeking, and people seeking shelter from airstrikes are staying, was killed in an Israeli airstrike. 
He had gone home to take supplies to his family after a week of working straight through and not leaving the hospital, according to Gazan authorities. Several members of his family were also killed. They were among the more than 300 people killed Saturday, including 90 children and 107 women, according to the Palestinian Authority's foreign ministry in the West Bank. At least 70 people caught up in the exodus from northern Gaza on Friday were killed when Israeli airstrikes hit a convoy of vehicles fleeing south, according to the Gazan authorities. Israel said it was looking into the matter. At least 2,215 Palestinians have been killed in Gaza since last Saturday, the territory's health ministry said including 274 children and 458 women. More than 8,700 have been wounded. By Saturday, displaced families were crammed into schools and hospitals in the south, while others crowded into the houses of friends and family. Many were sleeping out in the open in the streets, even as Israeli airstrikes, including on southern Gaza, continued. Aid groups were struggling to distribute any supplies as their own stocks, including fuel and food, dwindled amid the Israeli siege. The International Committee of Red Cross said it was able to distribute some food to water trucks so that they could make their rounds, as well as fuel for some water pumping. Quote, It's a struggle for life here, said a Gaza resident, Zaina Ghanem speaking on Saturday morning from the training center run by the UNRWA in southern Gaza. Quote, there's no food, there's no water, there's no sleep. There were 500 displaced people from northern Gaza, men, women, and children, all packed into one small hall, she said. Many Gazans chose not to heed the evacuation order, saying that the south was no safer than the north, and they would rather die at home. They also feared that those who left their homes would not be allowed back, a repeat of the 1948 mass displacement of more than 700,000 Palestinians who were either expelled or fled their homes in present-day Israel and were never allowed to return. So I'm going to leave it there for this article, but um, I, I really wanted to highlight... Um, the reaction, the extreme reaction that's been taken by the Israeli government and has effectively um, caused the death of thousands of people, thousands of Palestinian people, caused them to be in a crisis where they have not even water as they're bombarded by the Israeli government. Um, and I know that Jasmine and I had talked a little bit about this prior to recording today, but um, I'm sort of aghast as I, I watch um, the American government come together and um, fully support this vindictive mission that's being taken out on innocent families um, in the Gaza Strip. And, um, you know, the, the dialogue that's been going on has been so free of context and so black and white and so quick to label people evil who are just families, Palestinian families living in the Gaza Strip. And 
effectively this humanitarian crisis is taking place and it seems that not enough Americans are speaking out about it. Yeah, I think what I was mentioning to you earlier, and I've said it to some of my other friends, like when 9-11 happened, I was a kid. And even though I was a kid, like I still remember it very clearly. Like there was this really abrupt, shocking, violent event where, you know, the Twin Towers fell and there were over 2,000 Americans died in that incident and then immediately after it felt like like I remember like the way people would talk about like let's just bomb them all or let's bomb them back to the stone ages and it was just it was something because like yes like there's a violent incident that happened and you mentioned um, the Israelis who were murdered on Saturday which is horrible, you know, no one deserves for that to happen to them. And the way that that horror of that incident has been, it's been morphed into, because this is so bad, like you have to be given tacit approval to what's happening in Gaza right now. It to me is very reminiscent of how things were like post 9-11 going into the Iraq war. And I just, it's really been, uh, we're sitting here, you know, in the United States, like we're not in immediate danger from what's happening right now. Um, So it can feel sometimes odd to say that what's upsetting to us, you know, like we're not being displaced, you know, we're in, we're not in that immediate situation, but it's really like just the scale of the violence that's happening right now and the way some people are so bloodthirsty with it, it's really, it's shocking to me. You know, it's hard to wrap your mind around it. Yeah, and thank you for bringing that up. I don't think we've discussed this topic on this show yet, Um, but it was specifically the Hamas um, political leader group that launched a very bloody and an awful attack on Israeli people, Israeli families, Israeli children. Um, so, of course, sympathetic and thinking about those who endured that terror, the um, people, the hostages that may or may not still be alive and the families that are mourning or worried about their loved ones. Um, of course, you know, all respect for that and and feeling with those people. Um, but like Jasmine said, the idea that we we see this tragedy that happened to the Israelis and we now want to enact an, a larger scale tragedy to families and children in, you know, in Gaza, like I'm... I, I don't mean to question anyone's anguish over what happened in Israel, but I'm just, you know, I don't think the answer is to hurt other people. And, and like Jasmine said, the scale of what is happening right now and the ripple that could happen through the Middle East based on these extreme actions that are being taken with the airstrikes and the bombardment and the 
a forced diaspora of people, it's, it's overwhelming. And it's, I just, I can't see that this is a good solution. It's a horrible solution and it's only going to bring more suffering. Yeah, this is, it's been a troubling week thinking about so many people going through so many changes. I'm in this area of land and every time something happens there, I always just think about how this one strip of land and the many, many souls that suffer um, in this space. Um, what's most troubling for me right now is just to think that this so-called siege and that there is no way to get resources and food and water and electricity uh, to people who are already probably very troubled. Um, now in another situation where they're displaced as well to create a, a larger problem for the extended areas outside of it as well. Um, you know, it's really difficult at the point. This is just humanity and people really need to, I think we, it's just important for us to remember that no matter how you feel about anything, these are people who live their lives. Some of them um, just don't, where else would you have to go if you, you can't have a resource just for yourself just to be a human and, and be able to be okay in the midst of all of this. Yeah, I think that's the exact question for the Palestinians is where do they have to go? You know, they've they've been reduced to these small spaces. They don't have full rights. They don't have full water supply. They don't have full land. Um, you know, they've been suffering for a long time in the conditions that they live in. And to now have the general populace uh, of Palestinians become a scapegoat for a specific terrorist attack, um, it just doesn't seem fair because, you know, it, it's just so cruel. Yeah, I'm just, there's the um, the people who are now, like, immediately facing literally, like, eradication, like, their entire families being eliminated within less than a day, within hours, or less than that time. And then, as you mentioned, there's also like the ripple effects. And I think that that's been difficult to watch is like seeing that there's now like there was a woman who was arrested in France because she, you know, just greeted someone in Arabic and her neighbor heard her and reported her and she's been arrested. You know, it's like just this heightened level of and again, it's bringing me back to like deja vu with 9-11. It's like there was in that moment of crisis of the shock of 9-11 happening and the grieving and the fear and the loss that that was for us as, as New Yorkers and, you know, as Americans more broadly. It's like in that moment of experiencing that feeling, I think you the population is very vulnerable to getting swayed to being like vengeful or, you know, rushing into actions that you can't take back and that do have ripple effects. Like after 9-11, we had the Patriot Act and like all these other things that meant, you know, broad loss of privacy rights and other things and more surveillance. And I can only see like echoes of that now with what's happening with protests and you know who know like I before we got on like I was on Reuters and they're talking about Iran is threatening some kind of action and it's like what is this like going to be World War Three that we're talking about here like because it do, it seems like the potential is there you know we're talking about countries that have access to nuclear weapons vowing to eradicate and like to support the eradication like it's just you know I'm just very 
extremely worried for what is coming next and I I'm praying still for a ceasefire you know I know the White House spokeswoman says she thinks calls for a ceasefire are repugnant but it has to stop you can't bring people back by like spilling more blood it's it's just gonna spiral out of control yeah I definitely think that you know over the years I think maybe we were younger obviously when other um, large catastrophes were happening there but there's always trouble there's always issues in this area you know whether it's a lot small or large people are always losing lives every day but the thought that um, you know someone can eliminate people from getting assistance that kind of breaks all of the purpose of having some sort of united um, you know it's not a united government but a united understanding that people are people and in these complex situations, anytime that we forget that is the biggest problem because that's it's just not the answer. It's just going to cause for more issues um, right next to the country bilaterally and ultimately across the world. So, you know, not sure what's happening here, but definitely sending prayers that there's a ceasefire and that the people who need the help the most get it, regardless of what is happening we have to remember that humanity depends on one another. No one is alone in this world. We're all together. And if, if we don't stand up against people's humanity at any cost being um, not considered to be important, uh, we're, we're not doing justice to one another at all. Yeah, I think as I see uh, the vitriol and the quotes that I've been reading, people on Long Island, people in New York City, how adamant and bloodthirsty they are that, you know, every last bit of the Gaza Strip needs to be bombed to eradicate um, the great evil. You know, anyone listening, I just ask, like, like Reese was getting at, think about humanity, think about the people suffering, you know, have empathy for the people that of course, not all of them were implicated or implicit in this act. And it, it's just, it's going to be a, a massacre. And the U.S. government is contributing to it as an ally of Israel. And really, you know, prayers that this, this ends. Yeah, absolutely. Like, it's... Um... It sounds trite and it's not enough, but definitely praying for peace, you know, and I'm not a particularly um, prayerful person, but, you know, it's like we're all human beings and like no one should be, regardless of their religion, their race, their ethnicity, whatever. And if we all had to live and die because of the actions of the people in charge of our government, surely as Americans, none of us would be left standing. So, you know, think about that when you're making these statements about getting rid of whole groups of people, um, just hoping for the best resolution that can come from this. But it seems like there's some extremely dark times ahead. So you have been listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. Stay tuned for more community-based um, Brooklyn radio. 
And for our last song, um, this is an RIP track of Rudolph or Rudy Bernard Isley of the Isley Brothers, one of the founding members of that group recently passed away at the age of 84. Uh, so in his honor, we're gonna play you out with one of my favorite Isley Brothers songs. This is Footsteps in the Dark. Um, thank you for listening. Um, you know, hold your loved ones close tonight. Um, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye. Bye, everyone. Or go back.